Hey, this is Brandon Emma Richardson, and we are the pastors here at Slate Church based in Waterloo, Ontario, and this is our Sunday podcast. We really hope this message inspires you to lean into all that God has for you. If you would like to get connected with us, follow us on social media or go to slatechurch.com. And hey, it helps us a lot if you would rate, review, subscribe, and share this podcast. Join us for today's message. That really does spur us on to better living in Christ. And so all, all across the month of January, we're going to be looking at the life of Paul. And to open up that series, we have Pastor Emma. So why don't we welcome her up to the platform. Awesome. Thank you. It's good. Well, welcome to 2023. I get to say that as well. Thanks, Candice. I appreciate that. I learned long ago not to attempt to handle a mic and the podium at the same time. It's just not a good, it's just not a good option for me. But I'm glad to be here. It's great to be back uh, in the room with everyone. Uh, is everyone, do you have your Christmas tree down? Let's just take a Okay. A resounding yes. Candice, I don't know if you can hear me. Do you have your Christmas tree down? No, hers is up for a long time. I, uh, I love the new year. I love a fresh start. I mean, Christmas was wonderful in November. I, like, can't wait to get the Christmas decor up. It's, like, my favorite thing. And then January 1st hits, and I'm, like, disgusted. I'm, like, why is this in my house? Like, this needs to go. This year, I actually, I was up early one morning this past week with Lucy, and uh, no one else was up. The house was quiet, and I'm, like, it's coming down. And so before anyone else in my family even came down, the tree was down, all garland, all things were boxed up, waiting to be taken to the basement. And my kids came downstairs and was like, where's the tree? Like, what did you do? And Kenzie, our oldest, looked at me and she's like, you're the Grinch. Like, yep, it's got to go. It's got to go. You know, as Brandon was just saying, this is the time of year where often we become reflective, we become uh, goal-oriented, future-focused. What could, what could this year look like? It just feels like there's so much potential of what the year ahead could actually be and look like and, and reflection of who we are, where we've been, where we want to go. And as Brandon just said, over the next uh, several weeks, we're going to be looking at the life of Paul. And I think this is going to help root us in understanding who this person is who was so influential in the time where Jesus had come, died, and rose again, but also wrote so much of the scripture that we look at today. You know, oftentimes we introduce Paul as the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament, or, or a good chunk of the New Testament. But I think it's important for us to understand and have a better understanding of who he is, where he comes from, what the significance of him as an individual, and him as a Christ follower actually is for us today, and even learn a little bit from his life and what he, what he did. So we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 3. And, and I'm just going to read a few, um, a few verses for you off the top. But we're going to be kind of walking through a lot of context, a lot of understanding of Paul and his early life and, and these types of pieces. And then throughout the weeks of this series, we're going to get more into um, different components of Paul and his ministry. But in Acts 9, chapter 3, where we are finding Paul is on this road to Damascus. He is headed towards Damascus, and this is what happens. In verse 3, it says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And we know as we read this scripture that that voice was Jesus, and really this changes everything for Paul. And it actually changes everything for us as well. 
as we look into this. So why don't we pray, and then we're going to jump into uh, the message here today. So God, I thank you that we get to gather here like this. I thank you that we were able to worship you, that you've already met with us here this morning. And I just pray that you would speak through me today, that there would be clarity, understanding, and that as we have a deeper understanding of this man, Paul, that it would point us directly to you and what, and what you have done and what you want to do through us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm the type of person that if you meet me and I, I chat with you, I like to know a lot about you. I ask a lot of questions. I don't know if that's because my work as a therapist or my work as a pastor or just because I'm nosy and I want to know things about you. But I like to ask questions, specifically questions around uh, your upbringing, your childhood, your family that you grew up in. Who were you as a child? What did high school look like for you? Some of you are cringing in your seats even as you... Uh, Think about that for a moment. What, what were your parents like? What were the family rules and values that you had? What was the culture you grew up in? What was the context? And, and I find that learning and understanding these things about people gives better understanding to who we are today. When we think back to our childhood, the way we were raised, different events that happened, it gives some level of insight into the way we behave, the vices we have, the, the ways that we act, different things that go on in our lives as adults. And I feel the same way when I'm looking at people within scripture. I think it's important for us to kind of have a backstory, an understanding of the context that these individuals found themselves in and the lives that they live. You know, with Paul, we actually get quite a bit of insight. And I know that seems strange because there's really only a couple of verses on his, uh, him saying about his childhood or his upbringing or where he lived or these sorts of things. But it's more insight than we get for a lot of people within scripture and when we match it with the historical context of that area and that time and that culture, we can actually get quite a good picture of who Paul was and what that means in his uh, encounter with Christ on this road to Damascus. And then from there, his ministry that we see throughout the New Testament in his letters to the churches. And so I think it's important that we, we understand who he was if we're going to understand his contribution well. In order to understand why, like, why did he persecute Christ's followers? What was the point of that? Did he just have a chip on his shoulder? Did he just not like people? Why did he persecute Christ's followers? And after accepting Christ as the Messiah, why was he so passionate about it? Why did the, this encounter, this meeting, actually change things, not just for a year or two years or, or five years, but for the rest of his life, going through such traumatic events, and he was still in the pursuit of Christ? Why was that? And what did it mean for him to be resilient throughout his life? How do we understand him through that? So, so let's take a look and see what we can learn from Paul's trajectory. In Acts 22, as Paul is addressing a crowd and, and he's being kind of uh, put under as, as being, um, being wanting to, to put him down, the Jewish people were wanting to not have him continue to share what he was sharing. In Acts 22, Paul shares with the crowd, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. So we learn right off the top that Paul was born in Tarsus. And this was a city in Asia Minor at the time with mountains, a river running through it. And he was likely born somewhere between uh, AD 1, 85, maybe, maybe going towards somewhere in the first decade of uh, that time. And he lived in Tarsus, or was born in Tarsus, where there was a real fusion of cultures and different civilizations. So there were a lot of different people that lived and called Tarsus home. 
His father was very likely a master tent maker uh, because this is the trade that we see Paul take on later on in his life as he continues to grow up. And, and we know he had at least one sister. We don't really know anything about his mother. We don't, we don't know if she died uh, at a young age. We don't know if it just wasn't necessary for him to share anything about his mom. We don't know anything about his mom. But we do know that his family likely would have been quite wealthy, that his dad as a, as a master tent maker, they would have had quite a bit of money. Because in Tarsus, 15 years prior to this time, they actually no longer gave citizenship to those of Tarsus who didn't have wealth in their households. So because they had that citizenship, we know, okay, they would have had some wealth, some prominence as a household. The family also had this title of Roman citizen. And we see this come out as Paul talks about being a Roman citizen later in Acts, and this kind of gets him out of a tricky situation, actually just following what we read in Acts 22 when he's addressing the crowds. He's like about to be flogged, and he's like, I'm a Roman citizen. And so we know that that would have uh, cost his father quite a bit of money to have that, or his grandfather, and, uh, or prestige to be able to be given that ro Roman citizenship. So this was a wealthy family, and Paul was born into that Roman citizenship. He was a Roman citizen by birth. And these things are important, but perhaps the most significant thing for us to understand about who Paul was at this time was that he was Jewish. He was a Jewish boy um, born in Tarsus. And this is really important for us if we're going to understand what led him to this place of persecuting those who were following Jesus and following the way. At birth, Paul would have been given a full Latin name, which would have been three names. But eight days after he was born, when he was circumcised, he would have been given a Jewish name, which was Saul. This is what, how, how he would have been known at home, around his house, with his family, with his friends, different people around him. They would have all called him Saul. And this is what we hear really throughout the trajectory of his life up until the point that he meets Jesus, starts working and following uh, along with the Jesus followers and the way, and then he starts being called Paul. And I'm going to talk a little bit interchangeably as I refer to him, but Saul and Paul are the same person. Names are interesting in the Bible. We see them switch around quite a bit. But Saul, so we know that Saul was Jewish, but he wasn't just Jewish. He was actually also part of like the strictest form of being a Jewish man. His family was Pharisees. And so Paul was not just um, brought up in a Jewish household, but in a very strict Jewish household. As a Pharisee, he was very interested in the scriptures, in this Old Testament, studying the Pentateuch, and knowing what it had to say about this one true God of Israel. And so as a boy, he would have studied and prayed and followed the law very diligently. Like, we're not just talking here that, like, he went to church on Sundays and was at a local, like, two-thirds of the time and sometimes was on a team and, and was kind of committed to what was going on here. This would have been day in and day out. Everything that he did as a child would have been oriented around this fact that he was a Pharisee, and that is where his family came from. So he didn't just study the scriptures like, oh, I'm going to read from the storybook Bible before bed at night to you, uh, Saul, and you can kind of get an idea of Noah's Ark, and it'll be fun, and we'll leave out the bad parts. He would have studied the scriptures like knowing every part and every story inside and out. He would have memorized these things. His prayers would have been diligent. He would have followed the law to a T. He was very very uh, focused on this as a boy. And we can see that that would have been something within his family. Our, our two oldest kids, Kenzie and Theo, are in SK and JK, right, or SK in grade one right now. And I think that they are brilliant, really. Like, Brandon and I will look at each other and we're like, man, 
we got smart kids. Like, they know what they're talking about. They know what they're doing. And I realized that, that um, you know, when you have a child that goes from not being able to, like, talk or do anything, and then, like, five, six years later, they're, like, sitting on the bed at night reading you a book, you're like, okay, this is not normal childhood development here. This is, like, another level. What has happened that these kids are so smart? There is, like, we got prodigies on our hands. And, I mean, like, we get the report cards home from school, and, like, they're good. Like, they, they are developing at the proper level that they are to develop at. I often ask Jen, who, who's a teacher with kindergarten grade one, I'm like, what does this mean? Can you interpret the report card? Am I right that our kids are prodigies? And she's like, they are tracking according to plan here. Like, she's like, you can calm down a little bit. They are meeting expectations. That is the word. And I mean, I think most parents think this about their kids, like, these kids are brilliant, they're so smart, they're so impressive, but I mean, they're not about to get a headline, all right? They're not, they're not about to be in the news. But what we see in Saul as this child is that he actually likely had um, an aptitude and an ability to, to exceed expectations, so to speak, when it came to his ability to study and memorize and understand uh, this scripture, and to be able to actually c comprehend and talk about it and, and work with it. And we see that he is steeped in this law, in this scripture, and then he is sent from Tarsus, likely as a teenager, um, over to Jerusalem to study. Now, it's not that there weren't schools and ability to study in Tarsus, but again, his family would have been uh, in the strictest form and not wanting to have this diluted in any sense, that there would be these different civilizations, different cultures coming in. And he's, he goes to Jerusalem instead and studies under this well-known teacher, Gamaliel, and learns more about the scriptures, becomes more saturated, more grounded, more rooted in his understanding of scripture and faith. So after studying, deepening his convictions for a number of years, he then returns to Tarsus. And at this time, very likely, he was learning the trade of tent making. And this wasn't because uh, school didn't work out for him, so he moved back home. This was because he needed to, as a Jewish man, know and learn a trade and be able to work as well as study and teach and be able to communicate what was going on within his faith. So he was expected to work. So he went there, studied that, learned tent making, and then he went back to Jerusalem, very committed to his identity as a Pharisee, and he operated with zeal. And now when I talk about zeal in a scriptural sense, in an idea with Paul, zeal is not just like this great feeling, like I'm pumped up, I'm so zealous, I'm so, I'm so excited about what's happening, I have zeal, and then I'm just going gonna, gonna, to uh, show that and demonstrate that. What we see with zeal in scripture is that it's actually much more rooted in I will do anything to make sure that this form of faith, this understanding of the one true God stays in its purest form. Again, Saul would have known these Old Testament scriptures where, where the Israelites, at any cost, with great violence, wanted to keep the purity of what was happening with the one true God. As different uh, people groups would intermix, there was violent uh, acts that would take place in order to make sure, zealous acts that, acts that would take place in order to make sure they stayed with this purity of the one true God and it wasn't diluted in any capacity. And Saul would have known this. So not only was he rooted and diligent and committed, but he was zealous. He was over the top of this is the way it is supposed to be, so convicted by this that I am going to operate in this way at any cost. This was more than the average Jewish person would have been feeling at this time. But this is how he returned to Jerusalem, full of zeal. He knew the scriptures. 
He understood what had happened in the Old Testament, and he was committed to that for today. So when he gets back to Jerusalem, this talk of the risen Jesus was kind of all around at this point. And it's interesting because he studied in Jerusalem. He was alive right around the same time as Jesus. He studied in Jerusalem. He goes back to Tarsus. Likely, if he would have stayed in Jerusalem instead of going back to Tarsus to learn tent making, he would have been one of those Pharisees coming to Jesus and trying to argue with him and come up against him directly. But he comes into this place and he's hearing about the risen Jesus and he's debating uh, really intensely and there's all of this uh, uh, feeling that this cannot continue. We're not going to be passive about this is, is Saul's approach as his teacher was a little bit more passive about this. He's saying, I'm not going to be passive about this. This is not okay that this is coming up against the one true God, these rumors of Jesus, these, these Christ followers, these followers of the way, and it is not okay. And then we enter in the story of Stephen early in Acts. And Stephen is a Christ follower, and he, he proclaims that Jesus rose from the dead and that Jesus is the Messiah. And he goes to this point of talking about this with crowds and with people, and, and the Jewish leaders were not a fan of this. And they gave him a chance to speak, and, and he talks about this, and they're like, this is blasphemy against the one true God. We need to stone him, as the law would say. And so we read of Stephen being pulled outside the city gates, and he has this brutal stoning experience. They did not go easy on him at all. They did not knock him unconscious before the stoning would start. And they stone him to death. And, and all the while, Stephen is still pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And who do we have standing there in full approval but Saul? He's standing there guarding the coats of those who went out to kill Stephen. And he is standing there with full approval of what is happening. All of a sudden, this goes from a conversation and a debate and these people that are kind of on the fringe following this Jesus movement to this violent act that takes place that sets off fear throughout the believers. And Saul sets on the tr this trajectory of violent persecution to those following the way in order to have this zeal and purity of what he would have studied and known within scripture. In Acts 26.10, Paul talks about what he had done. He says, and that is what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So in Acts 9, as we're seeing this spread now to other regions and other areas, Saul says, I'm going to go to the high priest. I'm actually going to get permission to be able to go to Damascus and start persecuting believers there to try to squelch this movement that is happening against our understanding as Jewish people of what the one true God would look like. As John Pollock puts it, to Saul, Jesus had been a blasphemous imposter and was dead. And this is where we enter the road to Damascus with this understanding of who Saul was and what had been going on in his life up to this point. As we read earlier in verse 3 of chapter 9, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? So in this place, we're entering the road to Damascus. I'm going to reread Acts chapter 9 uh, in verse 3 to jump back in here. It says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
So in this moment, Saul is getting up from the ground in this prostate position, and he gets up, and he's realizing he can't see. All of a sudden, his sight is gone. And in this time, he isn't making a list of pros and cons. Right? He isn't debating what just happened to him and if that's an experience that was uh, accurate or not or if, if this is something that he really experienced, the true Jesus, or he didn't. He is just simply in awe of what happened and led from that place into Damascus. And we can, in our modern times, we can sometimes look at this experience and try to uh, critically analyze it. You know, we're... we're a number of decades after Freud right now within the world of psychology, and we can psychoanalyze uh, Saul's conversion experience, so to speak, and we can look at it and go, was it actually that he met Jesus, or was it just the heat of the day that caused him to hallucinate in some capacity? Was this an epileptic seizure that left him in a place where he couldn't see for several days? And we try to understand this through our, our logic and our senses that come that way. And as Christians, I wonder, can we actually look at this and go, could it just be? that Jesus actually met him on the road to Damascus in order to completely revolutionize his life, change the trajectory of his life, and therefore uh, spread this good news of who he was. We can also look at this conversion um, really kind of inaccurately as this conversion from Judaism, as we know it in our modern times, to Christianity, as we know it in our modern times. And this is almost unhelpful as well, because it wasn't this revelation of everything I knew was completely wrong and everything that these Christians are saying was right. Christian wasn't even a term that was used at this time. N.T. Wright puts it this way, what drove Paul from that moment on the Damascus road and throughout his subsequent life was the belief that Israel's God had done what he had always said he would. The belief that the one God had acted climactically and decisively in and even as Israel's Messiah. This reality would change the world. Saul has a deep revolutionary change take place and an experience that allows him to see the scripture he knows so deeply through a new lens. All of a sudden it takes these years of study and understanding of the one true God and it doesn't just take that all away, but it allows him to see it through the lens that Christ is actually the Messiah, that God actually did the work of fulfilling the scriptures that he had memorized and been saturated in for his whole life through Jesus Christ. And that revelation and understanding changed everything. And this takes place around 34 AD. From here he goes to Damascus, he receives his sight, he's met understandably so by terrified believers because they're going, wait a minute, this is Saul. Like this is the guy who's been persecuting Christians throughout Jerusalem, followers of the way, and I don't believe it. Like this is a trick that he is saying that he is now a follower of Jesus. But Saul is proclaiming Jesus everywhere he goes. He is now the biggest advocate because of this experience that took place on the road to Damascus. And of course, this causes major backlash from the Jewish people to the point where his life is threatened multiple time, times and he escapes down a, a city wall by a basket where his friends lower him down. We know at that point he goes to Arabia for about three to four years. And we can actually see this reflective of if we look at Elijah in the Old Testament, he would have gone to the same space, the same spot where Elijah went. And at this point, Paul is commissioned out to keep doing the work of proclaiming the name of Jesus. And the reason I mention that, I'd love to unpack it further, but it just shows his, his understanding of the scriptures so well. That these things that he did were with intention and with understanding of what had happened and what God had done and those he had respected and revered so deeply from the Old Testament.
He returns to Damascus. Then he leaves to Jerusalem again. He's being persecuted now on the flip side everywhere he goes. And he is received by believers in Jerusalem only because Barnabas is there to say, like, hey, like, I trust this guy. He's okay. Maybe we should believe him. And so he goes into Jerusalem, and he keeps speaking this name of Jesus. He keeps sharing this good news of Jesus. And again, the Jewish leaders are not having any of it, and they want to persecute him. They want to take him out. And basically, the believers there go, listen, we're going to have another Stephen situation on our hands, which is kind of ironic in all of that with how uh, how big Paul is when it comes to sharing the name of Jesus, how good he is at these debates, and how convincing he is when it comes to these conversations, how much he knows scripture. Let's, like, let's get him on a boat, and let's send him back to Tarsus. We need him out of here because he is not safe here in Jerusalem. And this is where we have 10 silent years through scripture. We have 10 years that we don't really know what is going on with Paul. And we have to, I, I want to stay in these 10 years for just a couple of minutes here. Um, when it comes to Paul's life. And I mean, this is where we have to be careful to not read into what isn't in Scripture. We need to do so with understanding, uh, historical understanding and, and what Paul's life would have looked like and what likely he was doing when, during those 10 years when he was back in Tarsus. And scholars would suggest that during this time, Paul would have likely been doing three things. He would have been working, he would have been studying, and he would have been praying. This is likely what was happening as he spent those, that decade in Tarsus. He would have been working as a tent maker. Again, he had studied this practice earlier in his life, this trade, and Jewish men didn't have this option of not working and just going around and meeting in the synagogues and chatting all day. That wasn't what was happening. Uh, he had to work. And tent making was hard, difficult work, but the benefit of it was that it could be set up anywhere, which we see later on in his life as this ability to go different places and work as he went, as he planted churches and did these things. It's amazing how God is working out through generations how Saul is actually going to be able to operate in the calling that he has for him. We can see God work through that. He would have been studying this rereading of scripture that he had known so well that he had understood and learned and memorized, he would have been reading that again through the light of Jesus Christ, pondering on this, meditating on this, learning, being open to what was going on at this time. He would have been praying, dedicated to the habits that he had as a Jewish man. He would have been praying, but not just to this uh, Old Testament understanding of God, but in this real uh, experience that he had of Jesus and him as the Messiah in light of this. And from our, our perspective here in the year 2023, we can look back at this season and go, ah, this was such a season of preparation for Paul. We can look in hindsight and go, we can see that Barnabas then comes and gets Paul and, and, and at, after that 10-year mark and he comes to Antioch and he's there for a year and then they go out on these missionary journeys and he starts planting churches and he writes the letters and, and he lives this, this missionary life, this missional life on mission for what God would have for him. And that was such a time of preparation. But for Paul... He didn't know any of what that was coming. He didn't have the story written for him. He didn't have this vision of this lined up, step-by-step -step journey he would be on for the rest of his life. For Paul, this was a season of simply obeying out of the revelation he had of Christ and then operating in a way that fit with that. You see, when we read scriptures, 10 years can go by in, in the flip of a page. Like we literally just turn the page and all of a sudden Paul is on his missionary journey. For some of us here today, this would be the first time we actually 
understood that there was this long of a time. Now we're at about 14, 15 years from the road to Damascus to when Paul is actually starting his missionary journeys that are taking place. Because when we read scripture, we just turn a page and all of a sudden we are there and he is moving and things are happening. And sometimes we expect our lives to reflect the way scripture reads. We experience God in a life-changing way. Maybe it's an initial eye-opening experience of who Jesus is, that he actually is Lord, that he actually died and rose again, and you've dedicated your life to Christ, and this is an incredible experience you've had. Maybe it's comfort that you feel from the Holy Spirit. Maybe hope, not just as a feeling, but as an actual virtue and a discipline in your life. Maybe you've experienced healing. Maybe you've experienced um, relationship uh, coming back together. We can have these incredible experiences with God, even just our time of worship here this morning. We can have these experiences with God. But sometimes when we take scripture out of context and our understanding of what that actually looks like, that timeline actually looks like, we get this kind of restlessness about us of, okay, God, like I had this experience with you. Now I should be doing X, Y, and Z. You should be doing this. My life should be exciting and reflective of what I read in Scripture. Sometimes we get hyper about how our lives should look. We need to be careful that we're not always simply looking ahead to what God might be doing next, trying to fast forward this process of discipline, when we actually need to be finding ourselves in a place of discipleship and being disciples. And I mean our current cultural context does not work well with this either. Because when you open up your phone, it seems like everybody is getting married, having kids. Uh, kids are graduating. Kids are moving out. Now all these people are empty nesters. This person's retired, and, and this is going on. And everybody just has something else going on in their life. Look at what God's doing through their life. Look at what's happening there. And we become restless with the mundane that it seems like our lives have become. We work. We study. We pray. We go to church. We operate in this obedience, but is that enough, God? Is that flashy enough? Is that exciting enough? And we're hyper and restless for what we see and think Scripture is actually saying to us. But what would it look like for us to simply work, study, pray? To simplify things a bit. And this is not to say that God doesn't call us to things in dramatic ways. This doesn't, this doesn't mean that there aren't big experiences that happen. This doesn't mean that you aren't supposed to go and do that thing or move into that next stage of life or step into what God has for you in that area. But God is actually working in the everyday obedience that you are walking in as well. As you're opening your Bible morning after morning after morning, even when all the feels aren't there, even when it doesn't seem like he's speaking, He's working in that obedience as you're having conversations, studying with your local, as you're coming to church on a Sunday, as you're going to work, as you're loving your kids, as you are uh, uh, loving your spouse well. These are the things that God is working in, and don't negate that and the significance of that. Sometimes we don't want to live the calling of staying. We just want to go. We just want to go to the other church or the thing that seems flashier, the th thing that seems bigger, find the complaints with where we are, move on to the next thing in life. And maybe God is just saying, just operate in the obedience. There is something in obeying. What would it look like to surrender your plans, your resolutions, your desires to Jesus and operate in obedience and follow him as it comes? On the other hand, you know, we have this restlessness. On the other hand, for many of us, we have actually like idleness in our life where we just aren't really doing anything. We're not actually really even obeying. We just kind of have haphazardly allowed our faith to become this side thing that sometimes we engage in. God is, you know, he's there and I'm aware and I know that, but it's just kind of this on the back burner of my life and I, everything else is more important 
situations I'm in, the anxiety I feel, the drama that's happening at work, uh, uh, the, the need to run my kids everywhere and do all of these things. And we actually become idle in our faith, where we actually aren't operating in obedience whatsoever. See, these 10 years of silence do not mean 10 years of idleness for Paul. He would not have been in a position for what God did have next for him as he continued to take steps in obedience had he not been obeying, preparing, growing. Not because that was coming, but because he did the things he was called to do, that came. It wasn't the promise of something flashy. That wasn't there, but it was the conviction of Christ and the experience he had in his life. As Christians, the option to be idle really isn't on the table for us in our faith. That's not what it looks like to follow scripture. It's not what we see within this text. We're called to love others, to seek Christ, to engage in the body of Christ, this church body, to be generous. You see, experiencing Christ in our lives, it elicits a response. One that is walked in, out of, in obedience and in hindsight can be seen as preparation for every stage and step of our lives. You know, we're going to go back into worship here for just a couple of minutes. But I wonder what it would look like for us to actually put Christ as the center this year. Some of us in this place, we operate in this realm of logic and we feel like everything just needs to be so logical and linear and, and mapped out for me. And, and you're just eating up timelines that I'm talking about today and understanding uh, Paul from this angle and that angle. But there is something really significant about experience. Experience is where change comes, where revelation often takes place where we allow the Holy Spirit to work within our lives. It's not just about tingles and feels and, and, and experience in, in the sense of, oh, well, if we can just set the right mood, then we're going to have this particular experience. God works way beyond anything we could do or set and in any situation. But there's something powerful about being able to go back into worship at the start of a new year with the understanding of how Paul operated his life and the experience he had of Christ and what came out of that. And it wasn't just fast-moving, flashy, here we go, next thing, next thing. And it wasn't idleness of, okay, that was nice, God. What a great experience we just had. I'm just going to go on and just live my life and do whatever I want to do. It wasn't either of those things. It was the surrender to Christ as Lord. And I wonder what it would look like in our lives if we were to take that same approach as we experience Jesus this year to surrender to him as Lord and operate in the obedience that comes out of that place. So we're going to go back into worship in just a second. But why don't you stand up wherever you are. We're going to pray first. And I want to pray for you. If you're in this place, and you're like, I'm just going to try out church maybe uh, in the new year. I'm just going to check this out. Um, somebody shared on social media, I decided to come out. And you're going, I haven't really made Christ Lord of my life. Maybe you're a little bit skeptical of it. Maybe it doesn't fit with your understanding. Um, Paul was skeptical, and it didn't fit with his understanding. And yet Jesus met him anyways. And so I just want to give an opportunity. If you're here and you're saying, you know what, I want to surrender, maybe for the first time, and actually call Christ Lord, actually understand that he did die and rise from the dead. And with that comes relationship with Jesus. It comes relationship with God. And so if that's you today, and you're like, I just want to make that decision. With every head bowed and eye clo eyes closed, um, no one's looking around. This is a private decision between you and God. And sometimes we don't allow the space to actually think about these things in our, our busy lives. If that's you, I very simply want to pray for you. So would you just raise a hand up wherever you are right now? If that's you, yeah, I see that. 
Jesus, I thank you for everyone raising a hand right now, making this commitment, making this decision to call you Lord, to recognize you as Savior. God, I pray that you would be with them. We know that this is why you came, why you died, to bring us into relationship with you. And I thank you for those making that decision here today. In your name, amen. Amen. Just a moment, someone's going to come up, give you some next steps or information about what that means to walk that decision out. But I also want to pray for you, and then we'll go right back into worship. So feel free to come up. Oh, you guys are right behind me. Um, I just want to pray with every eye closed and head bowed. If you're in this place and you're feeling like, yeah, I've allowed a sense of idleness to come over my life. I've experienced Christ, and, and I have just maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally just started to operate not in the obedience that Scripture calls me to, just in kind of getting by and doing my thing and being preoccupied with everything else. Or maybe you're on the other end of this and you just need to calm down. And you need to actually surrender your plans and your desires and everything that you have on your to-do list and new year, new you, to God. And say, okay, God, what would you have of me? I'm just going to actually be dedicated to obeying your word. And I'm going to keep stepping into what you have next. If, if that's you, on kind of either end or anywhere in between. But you know you need to surrender today. Would you just raise up a hand or put your hands out in an act of surrender, whatever that looks like for you. Let's pray. Jesus, I just thank you for the surrender taking place. We worship you. We call you king. We acknowledge you as the true God. We thank you that you meet us here in the midst of our plans, in the midst of our disobedience, in the midst of the places where we can just become complacent. And God, I pray that for those of us who need to calm down and actually start to get obedient in these holy habits, these, these daily uh, uh, understanding of scripture, help us to do that. And Lord, for those of us who need to actually get on the trajectory of, hey, I need to contribute to this church. I need to be grounded. I need to be willing to accept apologies. I Thanks again for listening to our Sunday podcast. To hear more messages like these, be sure to share and subscribe. We're thankful for all that God is doing in our church right now. We would love to have you be a part of what is going on. You can connect with us by filling out a connect card online at slatechurch.com. And hey, stay tuned for more content coming soon.